Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteronline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. I am here today with Dr. Andrew Lakis Kurakakis. Dr. Pak, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I'm good, and I'm... I'm uh thrilled to join you and also to congratulate you on your greek citizenship which uh, you just achieved by pronouncing my my surname your brand new greek passport and um tax that you owe the greek government uh, as well as uh, a couple of other uh, things that you need to pay the greek government for are on uh, the way to your mailbox oh nice well thank you welcome That's to greece I- I haven't been so nervous about an introduction before, but uh, I was going to, you know, glad I didn't stumble over that one. But let's stick with Dr. Pack or Pack, if, if that's okay. For sure. Cool. So I was wondering if you could kind of just kick us off by telling us a little bit about your background and how you came to study what you study. How did, how did you get started? I got into lifting when I was 16. I was never a super athletic kid. I played the odd rugby uh, back in the day at school in Germany, believe it or not. And once in Greece, there is a niche. There is a very, very like underground rugby scene in Greece. Um, but I got, I started lifting when I was 16, fell in love with it, um, really enjoyed the just being in the gym, then started reading about the gym to inform my own training. And as somebody who always liked to geek out about things, back then it was computers, um, I started to slowly geek out about lifting. I didn't really have direction then in my life. Like I was one of those um, individuals who didn't really know what I was going to do. I I liked computers, but computer science was too math heavy for me. And uh, then I decided to pursue a degree at Solon University in the UK. Uh, so I started a bachelor's, met my mentor, um, James Steele, doctor, associate professor, Dr. James Steele. For the non, for the Americans listening, uh, the title professor in the UK is earned. Unlike America, where it's like, hey, you teach at a university, you're a professor. And that's a really good point, too, because so many people, yeah, as having spent time in America, everybody said, Professor Reese, Professor Reese. And so I'm not, I wasn't even Dr. Reese at that time. So, yeah. And I, I had the same experience. And I was like, because they were co- like, I was seeing people, uh, uh, calling themselves professors and i was like ah, fine. i didn't know they were like that deep in academia because like in the uk achieving professorship you're there like what 20 years 25 30 years you've been you've been in academia and you've published and you've done like awards and external uh, like you've you've jumped through all the hoops there's a whole so hierarchy like, as well yeah, right yeah. lecture you know, assistant you know all that yeah and I was like, "Oh, damn! That guy's a professor. I miss. I must have missed uh, missed some of the stuff that he's done." And then, I, then they told me, "No, no, he's an associate lecturer, essentially." And I was like, "Oh, ah, but you just call people professor when they're just like t- teachers at the university. Cool." Um, but yeah, I met James Steele, who, as my mentor back then, he um, helped me. He he was my dissertation supervisor. But after my bachelor's, I said, look, I really enjoyed the research side of things. I like researching. I like learning more. I like the idea of giving back to the knowledge pool around lifting because then I can 
essentially help another person like me in the future, you know, figure some stuff out. And um, I essentially did research for free at the university. So I did a couple of projects and we published them. I started teaching because um, I come from a family of academics and education is something that I've always enjoyed. I've always enjoyed presenting to people and just talking about the things I love. So teaching came relatively naturally. And at some point I had enough publications to sort of allow me to jump from a bachelor's straight into a PhD without doing, um, you know, the traditional sort of master's route. And um, the PhD, yeah, long story short, we decided to look at what's the least one needs to do in order to get stronger, uh, but specifically looking at power lifters. I always loved looking into anything muscle and strength related, like muscle hypertrophy and strength related. And it's a, it's a bit of a long story, but essentially... I got, we did a pilot study in Greece with some power lifters and that gave birth to the idea for the PhD because to my surprise, we didn't really have direct research, uh, direct like we didn't have papers synthesizing the current literature on what's the least you can do. And we didn't have papers that directly explored what's the least you can do. Obviously, you had many studies where people didn't do much and then you could look at those and draw inferences from. Uh, but specifically in the population of power lifters, there was absolutely nothing. So that's interesting. Yeah. And I think, I suppose the first thing to, to note here is that we're talking about minimum effective dose. So we're, we're talking about, well, I'll let you explain, but the the dose that it takes to make some progress, right? Yeah. But it's not just a sort of maintenance thing. So yeah, talk to me about, about your PhD a bit more about the minimum effective dose in, and I understand it relates to strength. Yeah, for sure. So just, just just before I jump into that, at the moment, I am a visiting scholar at Lehman College uh, in Dr. Brad Schoenfeld's Applied Muscle and Development Lab, where we're looking at all things hypertrophy and strength, including maximizing those those attributes. So I just want to throw that out there to show that like I love minimum dose research, but we also love geeking out about, hey, how can we get our biceps to be slightly bigger and stuff that gen pop people may not necessarily care about. Um, that much at least. Uh, but we're also trying to like better understand muscle growth, strength, and so on and so forth. So the concept of the minimum effective dose is much like um, medicine. Like you're trying to find a, a dose that can elicit a response that is meaningful for the outcome that you're interested in. So the same way you'd like to find the minimum effective dose for X medicine, but you want that dose to be able to improve whatever condition is trying to improve. Similarly here, what's the least amount of training somebody can do to make gains that are regarded as meaningful, not to just see uh, a number slightly increase, but that increase could be because, you know, it could be well within error, like measurement, um, er error of measurement, measurement, yeah, error of measurement, measurement error, sorry, my, my Greek side was acting out there. Be quiet, stupid Greek. We're speaking English now. Yeah, I, I think that's quite important for people to remember. So this was the amount that you could actually make some progress. Might not be optimal progress. We'll talk about that later, but some progress. So if you could kind of summarize what you found. For sure. I'll give you the... So if anybody wants to read the actual studies, everything is out there. It's published uh, It's published uh, on different journals. They can go to minimumdose.training. If you just type minimumdose, one word, dot training on your browser, it will take you to a page that has all the studies there. It has three studies plus one. The last one is not from my PhD. 
But the top study on that link is essentially five studies in one, which is not common in sports science. But uh, we, we decided to go down the multi-experiment paper route to not have 60 different papers with the title minimum dose. So long story short, um, for, let's say, non-power lifters who just go to the gym and want to get bigger and stronger doing and this sort of covers sort of minimum dose for hypertrophy as well to a certain extent. Some terms are going to supply here, but doing a single set of around six to 12 repetitions close or to uh, failure, uh, perform two to three times per week, and that's per exercise. So let's say you're doing a chest press. If you're doing six to 12 reps, like a, a set of six to 12 reps to the point where you're like barely finishing a rep or not even finishing it at all, and you're doing that two to three times per week, um, you can expect significant strength increases, although suboptimal, uh, for around eight to 12 weeks. Now, we looked specifically at the squat and the bench press because, again, my PhD was uh, on powerlifting. So our inclusion criteria for our literature review was set there. But I am confident that even if you applied the same the same sort of concept to any lift, you'd see meaningful gains. And from a hypertrophy standpoint, from a muscle growth standpoint, um, we didn't directly look at that. But if you look at the literature on muscle growth, like a handful of sets per week of hard sets per muscle group per week are enough to give you a substantial amount of gains, potentially like... 50 to 70% of your potential gains just with such low training volume. So that could literally be you doing those three sets per week for your chest. And that's that. So the fact that you're getting less than 100%, sure, that's a bit, that may be an issue for some. But if you are somebody who is busy or doesn't is not able to get 100% during a few weeks, why not get 70% of your potential gains versus zero? Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot I'd like to pick up on there, but that that makes so much sense. And I think, are there any other scenarios, perhaps that I'm thinking like sports performance or you know that kind exactly. of thing, whereby it would be worth? Yeah, you you speak about it. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> uh, so like, we we also did some studies on powerlifters, and like powerlifters are for those of you that don't know, powerlifting is a strength sport. Uh, centered around three lifts, the squat, the bench press, and the deadlift. And a power lifter in competition, their goal is to lift as much weight as possible for one repetition on each of those lifts. And they get three attempts for each lift. Their best attempt from each lift um, gets drawn out and then they, they sort of add them together to calculate their power lifting total. So we're talking about people that are specifically like focused on getting as good and as strong as possible while doing one heavy repetition on those three lifts. And even in the case of those individuals, the minimum dose prescription as far as hard or heavy sets per week was very similar to like, let's say, gem pop individuals. It, it, we looked specifically at doing like single repetitions and things that were very specific to the actual thing that they wanted to improve in. Same way if you, if you're a runner or let's say a sprinter and you want and you have only a few hours per week to train, it's, it's likely it makes sense for you to just do sprinting because that's what you want to improve at versus doing your accessory stuff or your other training. If you only have those few hours per week. So the training that they did was super specific to one repetition, maximum strength. But again, a handful of heavy sets per week, anywhere between one to five repetitions, leaving like one to 
two reps in reserve, so not going full on to failure, was enough for them to see meaningful gains. And in that instance, we actually asked uh, elite powerlifters and high-level coaches um, to define to, to allow us to define meaningful. And we use that in our data analysis to calculate the probability of um, whether different sort of minimum dose protocols allow you to achieve gains that are considered meaningful by experts in the field. And, and how did they define meaningful? Because as you said, so much hinges on that word. As a lawyer, I, I, I alight on that meaningful word. Um, yeah, it, it was as simple as saying, because we had intervention studies that were only six weeks long, because uh, like recruiting powerlifters is not easy. Like it's not easy telling somebody who's doing a strength sport as a hobby and they're spending a significant amount of time, energy, and potentially some money as well to do that sport to tell them, hey, we're going to make you do this somewhat unorthodox, super low volume protocol. Um, something that was also supported by the survey data that we, we gathered where people were like, I haven't experimented with a minimum dose approach because I'm afraid I may miss out on gains. But essentially, we asked people, hey, what would be a meaningful increase over uh, six weeks in kilos for each lift and their total? And then we separated by athlete, coach, athlete and coach and so on and so forth. But we also did some uh, we did interviews with some of the elite and super high level coaches where they um, they, they were allowed to uh, they were able to expand on what defines meaningful. And there were there were plenty of responses, but essentially for the higher level athletes even any sort of change could be meaningful in those six weeks i was gonna say if they're you know powerlifters and presumably there are some of those if they're elite powerlifters they're already extremely strong so eking out you know just a few kilos is going to be meaningful you think right yeah it's not like they're newbies who'd never trained who would easily have meaningful gains just by training the lifts right yeah so we that's why we separated like the elite and super high level coaches like we we did the interviews with them and then the surveys were open um to coaches and athletes of all experiences and levels and then they were all pulled together so the survey data was as a result of uh, 137 responders and um obviously interviews were like the sample was much smaller but we're talking about like some of the best powerlifters in the world and some of the best coaches in the world. And like 50% of powerlifting athletes said that any change in uh, strength over six weeks is meaningful, saying things like, um, in their eyes, any sort of progress, no matter how big or small, means that whatever you're doing is working. And same with the coaches. Uh, 50% of coaches said that after a high level, usually anything is meaningful, and anything above where their block started would be uh, considered as meaningful. But overall, like the, the survey data, like, made sense from like from my practical experience like in, in general people said that around 17 kilos like total gain on squat plus bench plus deadlift strength total over six weeks so over a month and a bit is meaningful and i think that number is is fair but to, to further double check that we actually looked at the openpowerlifting.org database which essentially is a database of all powerlifting competitions across many years, tens of decades of, of comp competition. And we compared their responses to what um, is required to, what strength increase is required in order for one to move uh, up a rank every year to kind of see, cause like you could, 
they could have been some random coaches and athletes that said 17 kilos on average, but that number could be either way too high or way too low in comparison to what's actually needed in reality. And um, that number panned out to be, it, it was similar to, to, to what you'd observe in the field. Anyways, all that to say that if powerlifters who are busting their ass and specifically trying to increase one repetition maximum strength are able to get stronger with just a handful of sets per week, an athlete, a basketball player, a rugby player, a whatever player who, want, who needs to spend most of their time training their actual sport and has to work on a multitude of athletic qualities, the idea that, yo, you could just do a few heavy sets per week, heavy-ish sets per week, and your strength strength development, at least to a certain extent, will definitely be ticked because you're going to be making gains. Maybe you're not going to be making as much. Maybe you're not going to be making maximum gains, but at the same time, you could spend that extra time working on your basketball training or recovering better from whatever, your agility and your uh, aerobic training. Which would so, make you a better, as you said, basketball player or rugby player or whatever it might be. And I'm also thinking and you must have thought of this, but like during a season, for example, they would be super useful because the last thing, speaking from experience, during a rugby season that, that you want to be doing is smashing yourself up in the gym, right? You get smashed up enough, just play it. Yeah, and I'm sure that as a rugby player yourself, you've seen some pretty sketchy practices. Not sketchy in a malicious way, but like same as like with combat sports. Okay, we're doing a thousand push-ups today or whatever, like... I'm sure you've seen some 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 weird sort of SNC practices behind the scenes. Yeah, no question. And especially I think in preseason there was certainly some some interesting stuff there that that probably wasn't borne out by the uh, the science and the data, but they would argue perhaps that it, it, you know, it improved your mental strength rather than your physical capacities. But uh, yeah. I guess that's a separate. <laughs> that's a separate episode. Yeah, like SNC and and that rabbit hole. It's a bit of a rabbit hole as well. The the the, the idea, and yeah, I'm gonna throw the whole take here. And like strength training for sports performance in general, I think is a bit of a rabbit hole, and it's not as as clear as people make it out to be. Would you would you expand on that? I don't want to get you in trouble, but that that's interesting. You're not not. Um, let me. So there is a great paper by um, James Steele uh, on the topic. Former supervisor, right? So he comes former supervisor and and mentor slash friend slash. I'm trying trying to make a joke here. I'm trying to find the paper while buying myself time by speaking a bit slower. Um, but ah, there you go. I got it. So essentially, that he published a paper called "Does Does Increasing an Athlete's Strength Improve Sports Performance?" A critical review with suggestions to help answer this and other uh, causal questions in sports science. That was published in twenty twenty, and like the gist of the paper. Obviously, I'm not going to go over the paper because this is James Steele we're talking about, aka quite heavy. But the conclusion is that evidence is lacking on whether improving muscular strength is causally related to sports performance. And the evidence that we currently have is primarily observational and cross-sectional, uh, with experimental evidence being limited and usually focused upon proxy measures of sports performance, and usually in small samples, uh, without consideration of the meaningful of effects. Nobody, I'm not saying strength training is not good for sports performance but you know in the snc world it's not unusual to hear yeah yeah we're going to do this exercise and this will transfer to you being a better basketball player 
when you know you also have time that's passing of that person playing more basketball a hundred and other, uh, other things that they're doing and i don't know like um we need to be a bit more cautious sometimes yeah and often it's not just the strongest players the best player right there's so many kind of or even the most conditioned players the best player there, there's so many factors as you said that Perhaps sometimes if you spend too long in the gym and not enough time on your skills, then, you know, you're not maximizing yeah. it in the way you think you might be. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, okay. So we've talked a little bit and you've mentioned it um, a couple of times. Minimum effective dose, right? Minimum versus optimal, for example. And I've heard you talk about this uh, and I thought it was really illuminating because well, I'll let, I'll let you explain, but obviously there's a difference between minimal and optimal or minimum and optimum. But it's not perhaps as big as one might think. So, That's what she yeah. said. <laughs> About the concept of the minimum dose and then proceeded to laugh at my genitalia and leave. <laughs> no, we're, we're unfolded, so you're all good. Uh, probably increased viewing figures. Um, anyway, so... <laughs> Uh, yeah, the difference between minimum and optimum is not quite as big as you might think. Yeah, it's it's obviously like that depends on the actual dose that that's presented. But just when, like intuitively, it makes sense to do or, or like you're encouraged to do things to the best of your abilities and get the most out of whatever you're doing. And I'm all up for that. But at the same time, in the context of strength and hypertrophy, especially for the majority of people that are not getting paid from lifting, <clears throat> resistance training itself as an act is a huge benefit for your health and overall well-being. Even like up to 60 minutes per week can be enough to maximize the risk reduction for like all-cause mortality, let's say. Are you just going to the gym a couple of times per week is already an insane thumbs up. Um, but in the context of muscle growth and strength, suboptimal may mean that you're getting like 80% of potential gains versus 100%. But for a lot of people, that extra 20, 10, 30%, whatever that may be, um, may not be um, actually that meaningful or may not be worth their time, investment, or extra thought. Now, you can always, like, the difference between optimal and suboptimal in the context of uh, um, muscle growth and strength comes down to manipulating a few variables, uh, namely, like, training volume, how much, how many sets, how many hard sets you're doing per week, um, your technique, with, which can be adjusted, and potentially some advanced training techniques and, like, exercise selection. But for the majority of people, even those who are, looking to optimize and get the most out of their time in the gym, there will come a point where either they will be too busy, too tired, or even maybe not up for training um, as, as much in the gym. So we're going to focus mainly on like training volume here as far as like the minimum effective dose. We're not going to talk about technique and stuff. And for those people, the idea that, hey, you can still go to the gym and still get the majority of your gains, that in the long term allows you to be in the gym for longer and potentially look at closer to optimal gains than trying to force what's optimal and not really getting it in. Um, I guess the, the main takeaway here, uh, like I'm 
I'm trying to get more people to buy into resistance training and understand that, look, you don't need to feel this pressure that you're wasting your time if you just go in for 20 minutes. If those 20 minutes are focused, like I recently put up a 30-minute uh, workout video where I get a solid amount of work in. And granted, I'm somebody who's been lifting for 10 years. I can deadlift like 600 pounds for reps. Like I am an advanced lifter. And if I can get in and out in 30 minutes and get an effective workout, so can whoever. Uh, and I'm just trying to get more people to buy into the idea that, look, you always have a fail safe. You always have like a few sets per week to fall back on. There's no reason for you to not continuously engage in resistance training. You could do minimum dose, minimum effective dose training for the rest of your life. You'd miss out on gains. It's likely that you would. But you're still looking at all the health benefits. You'd gain a decent amount of muscle, a decent amount of strength. And overall, it's a really, really beneficial hobby for you. So just know that even a little bit is more than enough for like really solid gains. And you're not looking at 20%. You're looking at like upwards of 50 to 60% of your potential gains. For hypertrophy, for strength, it could be even like 70 to 80% of your gains with just like a handful of hard sets per week. And I think that should be really encouraging for people because as you said, like that extra 30%, unless you're a professional athlete or, or a you know physique athlete, whatever it might be, probably doesn't matter all that much. As you said, it's certainly not going to impact your health very much, for example. And there may actually be, you know, arguments that it it improves your health because less stress on your joints and stuff like that, for example, from periods of, of lower training. So talking again about minimum and then optimum. And if we talk, uh, I just, I kicked myself if I didn't ask you this, but in terms of say sets per week and hard sets per week, Obviously, the the quick answer is it depends. But as a general kind of guideline for 80% of the people, 80% of the time, or whatever figure you, you want to put on it, what are we looking for optimal sets per week? Uh, I'd say somewhere in the 10 to 20 range um, per muscle group per week. And it could be like, it, it's probably a bit lower for strength. And it could be like 8 to 15. But like, it's not, you can't really tell for sure. Cause it's like, you're not going to clone yourself and see whether, you know, Johnny one versus Johnny two, who's going to gain more muscle mass. I think for the majority of people, like stay within that range, figure out what, you know, you enjoy training more, recovers better over time and so on and so forth. And as long as you're in that range and you're consistently progressing and doing your due, dil due diligence, Outside the gym, as far as recovery and food go, the details don't matter that much. But I'd say, sorry, I'd say, let's say you are somebody whose life is all about, like, you want, you care that your like, side delt is slightly smaller than your front delt. And, like, you want to gain as much muscle mass as possible. And, and that ende endeavor in itself it really enhances your life quality. Like, it's your hobby. It's your passion. Like, you love it. There, I'd say... I don't know, making taking making the bet and doing even more training volume. So being maybe in the 12 to like, or maybe 15 to 30 set range. Again, for that specific, like for the individual who wants to leave no stone unturned, based on the data at the moment, you know that you're not going to lose muscle mass. Maybe you did spend that extra time in there not really gaining much after a certain point. But if it's like, if you want to leave no stone unturned, um, 
do I do I think that you're gonna make a ton more gains by doing a ton more volume? Not necessarily, but it's worth making. It's worth taking that risk because you're not risking that much, and it may be that you actually make more muscle gains. More muscle gains that are meaningful for somebody who looks at the details. Um, I'm not gonna do 25 sets per week, or like I, I'm, I'm happy with eight to 12 sets per week because it's manageable, and I don't care now if I've missed out on like half a kilo of muscle mass overall, like over the past few years. And is it is it body part specific at all? Like, would there be so? Well, I'll, I'll let you answer that. Is it body part specific, or? I mean, that's something that you'll figure out more or less. Um, there are some like volume guidelines that have been thrown around, but it's not like we have a ton of data that you can say for sure that this muscle group needs more to grow or needs less with with a lot of certainty. Plus, again, get in the gym if you see that hey. Like monitor basic things, Let us see what your session RPE is, uh, see how sore you are uh, after a few weeks of getting used to a new program. If you see that you're in the gym and your quads, um, after you do like eight sets per week, they hurt for three days and you're feeling tired, maybe you need to keep it there. Um, obviously, assuming your sleep, food and so on and so forth uh, are in check. For other muscle groups, you may see that you can push them more. If they're feeling recovered and you can do more, do more if you're trying to absolutely maximize muscle gain. But the name of the game is like you being in the gym and lifting for a long, for like long periods of time, not busting your ass for three weeks and then needing a week off and then doing that over and over again. So it's that consistency, it's that kind of aggregate, <clears throat> excuse me, like compound interest type thing. Yeah, which we also don't know for sure. Like that would be cool as well. Like if we had a, a few millions, we would be able to like answer a lot of questions. Like it would be cool to see over... The course of like five years, whether higher volumes um, result in greater muscle growth over those five years, or whether muscle growth sort of plateaus after a point, but it plateaus faster with uh, high volumes, and then maybe plateaus slower with lower volumes, or whatnot, or whether it's like volume over time that actually leads to you know. Uh, so let's say you have. You have one individual who does high volume training, but then they stop for a bit and then they start. And then you have somebody who's consistently doing volume and uh, who's consistently doing low volume training. And after five years, they've ended up doing more training volume. Is that person going to grow more? I, I think probably yes. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting way of looking at it as well. I, I think you've just touched on it, but one knock that people might have on, on studies is they'll say, oh, well, it's short term, you know, it's it's six weeks or 12 weeks. And what, you know, what, what would this impact or what would this method look like over two years or whatever it might be? Yeah, it's like, okay, bro, nice. You are that guy. You made that comment. Congratulations. We were not aware that uh, there are limitations in, in research and we are um, all collaborating to do short term studies because uh, the only thing preventing us from doing longer studies is our will to do them. It's like, it's a bit, it's a bit of a, like a silly comment in the sense that sure, we like, we are aware of the limitations of, of science, especially sports science. But at the same time, it's difficult to recruit populations and control their training for long periods of time, especially in the absence of funding. Um, and at the same time, we can still draw practical, we can still draw inferences from shorter term studies, uh, be, be cautious with how we interpret data. 
and still um and at the end of the day we're talking about lifting weights here it's not whether uh it's not like heart surgery where you can't just go yeah probably he will live probably i mean we'll see we'll see when we're there right or uh you know astrophysics where you're like ah eh, we will launch maybe won't launch we'll like, press the button and we'll figure it out like sure you we like with training volume we can't express with absolute certainty that it's this set range that will definitely do this and that but based on the evidence that we currently have we can make an educated guess and be like okay it seems that if you want to absolutely maximize muscle gain you can do this much minimum dose is the same like do we know if like doing a few sets per week is going to work for three years no we don't have any data do we know do we have anything longer than actually I'm chatting shit, as we'd say in the UK. We do have some long-term data, but not in the form of like an actual randomized controlled trial. But let, let's let's ignore it. Like, but we can still make an educated bet and say, look, we have the totality of evidence shows that a few sets per week seems to be thumbs up for for muscle growth and strength. It's likely that you can sustain that for some time. Then you can add a bit more. But those sort of criticisms that are just thrown out and I don't see the purpose of it. Like, what are you highlighting? That there's limitations in science? Sure. And, like, where do we go from there? Like, we can we can literally tear down a lot of sports science stuff. Like, absolutely tear it down, especially if, you, if we go back a few years. But we are an applied field, and we want to actually provide some practical uh, takeaways here. You know? Yeah, I, I totally, I just felt like a lot of people say that. Uh, so I thought, you know, it would be interesting to actually get the response, which makes a lot of sense. And yeah, go on. No, like, let's then look at things like martial arts. How, how many studies do you think we have in like boxing training or like a lot of things that we do or, uh, educational systems and whether like we can start peeling off a lot of layers of a society and things that we do and see that cool, there is some evidence, but it's not as set in stone as people think. Same goes with sports science. As long as we're being responsible enough and communicating things with some caution where caution is, is needed, then um, I don't see why that criticism necessarily, like that criticism is not enough to change much. It's it's just pointing out something that is unfortunately part of part of the game in, in sports science especially niche areas like maximizing muscle hypertrophy in like tra uh, resistance trained individuals and powerlifting strength and bodybuilding and so on and so forth the uk government is not going to go like yep here you go a three million grant to look at bodybuilders and as you said nobody is more aware of limitations in research than the people who actually did the research right so i can imagine you know, as an academic myself, having something like that, you know, pointed out, you're like, yeah, no, I, I had, I had thought of that. You know, the thought had occurred. Yeah, I, I get that. And it's like it's part of getting closer to the truth. Like you're not, it's, it's like you're gonna, you, you have to be at that stage and then slowly build from there. It takes time, and things are not as simple behind the scenes as they, as they look. I am a researcher as a hobby. I love research. I don't get paid for research. As some of you listening will probably know, academia is not academia is BS for for a great part of it. Like it's it's not a, like yeah, the titles are fancy and people say, "Oh, you're a professor at the uni," but things behind the scenes are like just 
a book I would recommend is uh, Science Fictions by Stuart Ritchie, exposing fraud, uh, 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 bias, um, and negligence in science. But um, what what did I want to say? I wanted to say like another example is like deloads. Are you aware of the the of what deloads uh, are and how they're used in the context of resistance training? Essentially, essentially, periods of time where you take a step back and allow and allow your body to recover. Planned lower volume and and all that, and potentially intensity as well, right? Yeah. Up until last year, we had zero studies on deloads. Yet a lot of people were implementing deloads because you know they gathered whatever evidence they could from you know other studies that maybe looked at detraining and um, like physiology and sort of said, okay, whenever you're tired, take a week off uh, and manipulate these variables this way because that seems to do the effect, uh, to, to get you the effect that you need and get you to feel like less fatigued. Now, despite having no evidence of it, no direct research, we were still able to apply that concept relatively appropriately. And now that more evidence is coming out, like a few studies have come out in the last year or so, including the first intervention study, shout out to Max Coleman, we're seeing that a lot of the things that were, were sort of in place are being somewhat slowly confirmed by the research. But again, we are a practical field and muscle growth and strength as not are not, unless you're like a pro athlete. And even then I'd say they're not that complex, but they're not that complex. It's not a life or death situation. Worst case scenario, you may have been doing slightly less or slightly more in your training, or you didn't really need to do that super slow eccentric um sort of part of the of the lift and you could have gone a bit faster and that would have also been fine you know <laughs> yeah uh, i think that makes a lot of sense and you, and you show a lot of um intellectual humility which which is sometimes lacking i think in especially in the health and fitness world a lot of kind of you know a, awareness of um what people might say and, and criticisms and all that sort of thing so we've talked about maximizing and we've talked about minimum effective dose. Uh, but I think the key thing to stress with minimum effective dose, and obviously I'm, I'm talking to the listeners and the viewers here, but is that minimum effective means that you will make some progress. Some so, meaningful progress. As some well. meaningful progress, right? So there's a lot. Yeah. So, so, yeah. What about if things aren't great and you have a period where you're not even able to do this minimum amount are there any kind of ways in which you can retain muscle mass or how much and again obviously this is going to be a tricky question to answer but you know how long can we go before we start to to lose we'll use meaningful meaningful amounts of muscle mass and how how much would it take to offset the loss of this meaningful amount of muscle mass yeah so I would say that if you're somebody who's like legit interested in like gaining muscle and strength, even if you're not trying to maximize, like being completely off the gym for like three plus weeks, that's where things may slowly start to not go away. You're not going to melt uh, all of a sudden, but like if you haven't lifted for three weeks, that's where probably things are starting to not look that great. Um, and Sorry, distracted ADHD. It's diagnosed. It's a blue badge condition. And how dare you? They look, <laughs> but like, just do something, man. Like, how busy are you? Just fucking go to either go to the gym for, for like one session of like 30 minutes where you can literally sit on one machine per muscle group 
do one set of even like two reps, like put the full, full stack and just go uh, and just try to push it. You do that every week once your body's going to be like, okay, we're holding on to this muscle mass. It's, it's much easier to maintain, uh, than to build M- much, much, much easier. Again, assuming you're not on some crash diet and sleeping one hour a day. Um, let's say you can't go to the gym and I don't, I'm not a big fan of these people that like don't find solutions and they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm busy. I can't go to the gym at all. I'm like, bro, are you that busy where you can't go once in your whole, like whole week? You, I get it. Maybe you live in some remote part of the world. Okay. Fair enough. In that case, if you're legit interested in keeping your gains, just do some bodyweight training. Literally f- Google, um, exercises for your whole body that you can do at home or like at a park or something. And then just do one set of that until you're, you can't do it anymore. But even if you do a bit of it and not to complete failure, I think that will still be enough to maintain the majority, if not all your gains. It depends on your training experience, right? If you're, yeah, I was gonna, I mean, I was sort of thinking, so for example, I freaked out, uh, with the COVID lockdowns because I didn't have any gym equipment at home. I trained for whatever it was, 15 years at that point. And, you know, I, I did, I did, as I, you know, as I always do, I looked into the research and, and three weeks is, is kind of, as you said, a, a bit of a cutoff point. But I'm thinking in those, like, if you got injured or there's another global pandemic or, you know, gyms are shut, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. I How mean, much did they pay you to say those words? <laughs> we were clapping for those doctors out there with their bachelor's degrees. Where's oh, my well, clap? Who, who are the real? We, this is the important this stuff. Is, so okay, let's doctors? let's let's pull out my favorite paper titled "Whom Should We Really Call a Doctor?" By oh, a, by the uh, Canadian. Yeah, I've seen that one too. Yeah. All right, and let's just read the last sentence, uh, which says. When we are asked in a physician's or a dentist's office what kind of doctor we are, we respond, the real one. We are the ones that teach others. But I didn't know that it was such a big, like, I, I came at it with a, like, self-parody, sort of, like, real doctor. And then I was like, like, people were responding and writing essays, and they were like, yeah, we are the real doctors. And I was like, wait, is this a thing? Like, I didn't know it was a thing, but apparently it is. Um but yeah, let's say even during a global pandemic, man, I had advanced lifters that were doing, they had like one dumbbell at home and went from effing squatting, you know, 500 plus pounds to doing split squats and like sissy squats and pistol squats. And they, they came out the lockdown just fine. Like the lockdowns were a really good, like sort of, obviously it wasn't a controlled study, but it was a, a nice, like observe, uh, a nice um, chance for us to observe how people actually get back into training after being at home. And yeah, let's say you're on holiday for two, three weeks. And again, you're a loser and don't want to go to the gym because you love lifting, but you don't love it enough to go to the gym while on holiday. What kind of a holiday is that where you can't go to the gym once a week? Huge pet peeve for me. When, when clients, bro, you're paying, you're paying hundreds of pounds per month for coaching. You're on holiday in a civilized country. Like, don't you want to go for a quick session once? Like, I don't get it, but that's just me rambling as a, Obviously, that's that's not the response I give, right? One of my favorite things when, on holidays to train. Obviously, I don't go for a three-hour session where I miss out on the holiday, but like a twenty-minute hotel workout or like go and see different gyms. Anyways, I'm 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 going full on. ADHD. I'm with you on that one, but uh, as you said, a lot of people. I had a lot of clients who would be like, "Oh, I'm not going to train." I guess they associate training, especially in America, working working out. They associate it with work, and they want. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not a psychologist, but yeah. 
psychologist. Um, aren't you? Um, I mean, you're you're you have a law degree, but I'm pretty sure the psychologist ba- ba- it's baked in there somewhere. Uh, oh, how do you feel? Good. Okay, you're fine. Um, that that will be a hundred pounds, but. Just do something, literally, like any exercise that you can do with your body weight. Um, ideally, take it close to failure, but that should be more than enough for you to maintain. And like, I know it sounds, it can be a bit cringe and a bit like, uh, like uh, people associate environments with with certain feelings. Um, you know, psychologist over here, but uh, you know, being in your hotel room and all of a sudden needing to do push-ups. But once you get that first in, set in and you sort of feel your heart rate go up and you're, you're slowly starting to build up a sweat, it's much, it will be much easier for you to, you know, get something in. Even if you don't target all muscle groups, you holding a suitcase and doing like single leg RDLs and like some like paused goblet squats and then maybe banging out a few pushups and like doing like a few rows again with a suitcase. Or if you're lucky enough where you can do some chin up somewhere, that's going to be more than enough for your body to go like, yep, all good. No stress. Ideally, oh, cool. Ideally, like having access to a gym um, would would be even better because you can literally go in 30 minutes, sit on one machine per body part, like chest press, shoulder press, leg press, leg curl. Um, What am I forgetting? Lat pull down or a machine row or whatever. Maybe calves and abs if you like those. One set of each, literally any rep range close to failure, you're done. Your body now is like, okay, I'm going to maintain now. And it would be literally any rep range close to failure, you said. So it could be body weight stuff, even if you end up doing 30 reps, that's not a problem. Yeah, yeah. But I would argue that even not close to failure, your body's probably going cool, but you don't want to tell people, hey, you know, do an easy set of three reps where you get into a push-up and just go one, two, three. Okay, that's like, if you're only going to do that one set, at least make it count to make sure you're ticking as many boxes as possible. That makes a lot of sense. And I suppose on this, well, the last question on this topic, what about injuries and anything that, so I've heard about, and I'm probably going to butcher it because I'm not a scientist, but this cross innovation principle and the idea is, you know, if you, well, you can explain it, but that kind of thing. And then coming back from injury. So say you haven't been able to train your legs in You've had knee surgery or something like that. So I suppose the first part of the question is, is it worth training the other side? And the second one would be, you know, how how would you, because you wouldn't suddenly jump straight into 20 sets, right? No, for sure. Yeah, it's definitely worth training the other side, especially if you can't do anything. And there's other things that you can potentially look into exploring, like blood flow restriction training, um, where you could potentially train with very, very low loads and still get a benefit uh, from training. You could even look like look at isometrics or like even deep stretching to an extent can help. You could even look at electrical muscle stimulation. So, okay, we're going a bit YOLO, but like you've seen, you've probably seen those ads like where they connect the electrodes. The electrodes or the abs, yeah. Yeah, like that for an injured person, let's say you can't bend your knee whatsoever. Looking into that and going obviously to a trained professional and doing that to your quads and maybe like hamstrings and calves, it can be equivalent to like uh, an isometric contraction. And that may be enough for you to at least not lose as much, you know, which is, better than losing much so 
there's there's plenty of ways to i don't want to say skin a cat because that's a sensitive uh, i'm a cat dad and i've stopped using that the phrase but there's many ways to go about it you know like you have plenty of tools in your arsenal keep in mind now if you are if you've gone in a car crash and you've broken every bone in your body eh, maybe electrical muscle stimulation is going to be painful or you know you won't be up for it so uh, assuming it's it's not the, the worst injury in the world there's ways to work around it okay yeah that that makes a lot of sense and i think we've covered quite a bit of this already but you must see so not only are you a researcher and, and an academic a teaching academic but you train yourself right you mentioned deadlifting 600 for reps and and all that sort of stuff so you clearly spend quite a lot of time there you go uh in in gyms right and and training and all that sort of stuff so what are the biggest mistakes you see people making and we may have covered some of them already but you go to the gym and you have a look around what are the biggest mistakes or what annoys you you know in training um the biggest mistake i guess is again like not really understanding that something is going to be better than nothing and where people fall off the wagon I don't want to go on a like no excuses sort of rant, but it's like, especially like I see people fall off the wagon completely and I'm like, bro, like could have gone in once, like just because you couldn't do your six sessions per week that you committed to mentally, like we're telling you just go in once and do something. You'll see it's going to over the long term, you're going to be like, nice that I went in those months and still got something in. Uh, and I guess like things like, Ego and technique, although that's another rabbit hole, but like, bro, you're in there, you're trying to gain muscle mass. There's no real good argument for your technique to be horrible. Like, I get that maybe you don't want to do like the super deep stretch and the, even there though, I'd be like, you're doing it anyways. Add the extra little bit, create good uh, training habits, good training etiquette. And obviously now that I said the word etiquette, the assholes uh, that are still in 2023, because I train at a commercial gym, the gym, uh, as you know, as a, as a fellow British man, uh, the gym, the group, sort of the, the chain in the UK, like take your fucking uh, things off the bar when you're done. That's not really a training mistake, but like it's it's related to training etiquette. But leave the ego out the door when it comes to technique. Nobody cares. Nobody's watching you. And if you're there doing the damn thing, might as well do it properly. And why why get used to like reducing range of motion or being sloppy with your form? And then six years down the line, that's how you've learned to train. And you see that with many like even jacked dudes that are. Uh, that I've been training for like decades that they learned that way. And then they sort of like allowed themselves to continue that way. And it's like, eh, uh, like I'm, you're not, you're probably losing rather than gaining from, from that habit. Plus why, you know? Yeah. I guess, as you said, people, there's, there's probably quite a bit of insecurity uh, in some of the, in some of those people, if, if it's related to ego, I mean, I think a lot of people who train it, it may stem from some kind of uh, insecurity uh you know there's my amateur psychology again so another thing that i'd like to talk to you about and we're changing gears a little bit here from the sort of more science-based actual data of strength and conditioning and talking about communication uh -huh. and one of the things that i noticed with you is that you're a very good communicator that a lot of this stuff that, that can be quite dense especially academic stuff you know you're good at summarizing and i think you put up a post the other day about the value of memes for example 
and a quote from your mother, which I thought was really the original, good. the original doctor, the original doctor, the original doctor. So, and, and she's a real doctor, I take it. She's a real doctor like us. Yeah. Well, there you go. So maybe lead with the quote, uh, and hopefully your mum will, will watch this interview, so that'll she, be at least one viewer. Does. And um, yeah, so if you start with the quote, and then tell me your your sort of thoughts on that and and communication of academic ideas to a more general public audience for sure so just a bit of background on my mom dr andrew lackey the original uh, did her um masters in nyu and her phd at the university of reading uh specifically on in linguistics and the topic was gaps and clinics in greek the mo not the most exciting phd for non-linguists but hey ho you know, shout out to her. Uh, and my mother is a, an educator. She has worked at like private schools in the, I don't know if you know the educational system, IB, the International Baccalaureate. Baccalaureate. So she's been like um, an IB coordinator She back in the day, just, just a teacher. But now essentially she teaches teachers. She's written and published books for like uh, the lessons of the IB, specifically on like English, uh, English literature. And she is, she's been an educator for the, her whole life, uh, has, has worked at, uh, in schools in the UK as well, including like the American School of England and in Germany. That's why we went to Germany. I lived in Germany for seven years because my mother worked at a school there. And she travels the world and teaches other um, academics about like how to teach and so on and so forth. And I'm, <laughs> I heard somebody mention, like, people have received the memes relatively well, like, just a bit of background for people that may not know. Uh, I make memes on, on Instagram uh, as, a, as a mean of, like, communicating science in, in an easy and sort of entertaining way to, 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 like, grab your attention, see the memes, see the gist of the, the literature, and then there's usually a lengthy caption with some references on a particular topic. Keep in mind... You and and this where this is the, the where the quote of my mother comes in place where she said, uh, in order in order to how can you guide the learner to where they want to go if you don't meet them where they are? Um, I mean, the full quote was actually, if we're to educate global citizens for the future, learning can only be self-directed learning or andragogy, char characterized by learner control, self-responsibility, learner definition of objectives, a problem-solving approach to learning, self-directedness, intrinsic motivation, and the incorporation of the learner experience. And then there's more, so we're going to skip that. Too long, didn't read, mom. I just wanted a quote. Um, but yeah, essentially, like, teaching at a university from a young age, so I started teaching as an associate lecturer from the age of, like, 20, 21, 22, because there was... Um, I was always good at presentations and I w was fortunate enough to uh, be able to teach because uh, a sport nutrition teacher, a lecturer back in that day, she uh, was pregnant and they, they needed somebody to sort of cover lectures sort of immediately. And, you know, I had published some research. I had shown that, you know, I'm not just some random guy. And the, the one thing that I saw is that in academia, there are some ways of doing things that are sort of there and have remained there. And I was like, okay, if I am, able to get those students, the students to interact with whatever I want them to interact and actually learn, even if the medium that I use is somewhat unorthodox, that's fine. It doesn't need to be the same boring PowerPoint slides and me just going through them in the form of a traditional lecture. Why, why force that if it's not working? 
Um, and that's, that's something that memes, um, helped, helped do, helped me do, helped do. Um, but you know, some people were like, some, only a few, like, uh, said, you know, you're an academic. How can you be making funny memes? And it's like, come on, bro. Like, since, since when are we above, um, uh, like make, above being good educators? Like, that's the name of the game. The name of the game is not to gatekeep knowledge and be like, yeah, here's my latest meta analysis for the five people that read the full text. And, and that's the sad thing that you hit on it at the end, right? Very few people will read the full text and therefore very few people will actually benefit from the research, right? Whereas if you can communicate it as you do in more sort of manageable, digestible chunks, then, you know, at least you'd argue that some of the purpose of, of the research is, is to inform people while it's serving its purpose perhaps more effectively than, uh, than it would otherwise. Yeah, and you see that at universities, man. I mean, I'm sure you've seen it. How many, like, I don't know how it is with law, uh, but it's like, bro, you you see students that are paying nine or how many, I don't know, I don't even remember how, how much tuition is now, but like tens of th thousands of pounds for their bachelor's degree, which some could argue that in some cases may also not be giving them that much as far as like career uh, prospects, but they're still doing it. And it's a great way for for somebody to to learn and open other doors through university and you see them not engaging like like i it it's it, it it really grinds my gears to see people studying fitness and personal training or sports science or like uh, strength and conditioning and it's like bro you lift i see you in the gym because we all go to the same gym because we live in the same town you are not geeking out but you're consuming content around the gym how can you not care about your degree for your own sake. I get some modules will be more boring than others, but like, how can you not be aware of the literature, like, or just watch a few YouTube channels or whatever? I don't know. It's, it's mind boggling. So finding ways to engage those people more. I think that should be the name of the game rather than, oh, we got to do things the way we did things uh, years. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think that's very persuasive. Uh, and I think that especially in this kind of 21st century, environment with, with so much online you know if you can't communicate online and you can't communicate to people in a way that grabs them more quickly then you're going to miss out on a lot of people uh and in the u.s for example what you said is just it's just underscored even more right with seventy thousand dollars per year for some bachelor's degrees you know when my uncle told me how much he because he's a lawyer He's a big, big time lawyer. Um, I'm not going to say specifics, but he studied at Georgetown. Bro. Wow. Like we're talking 50 times the cost of our PhDs. Like we're talking like millions, not millions, like hundreds of thousands of dollars. But okay. Those are elite schools in the US. I'm sure people that pay that money engage in their courses. But back to the UK and like sort of bachelor degrees, it's, it's just so weird to see the system not changing and then just ah, going through the motions. I'm not saying everybody, there's academics out there that are absolutely wonderful and do a fantastic job at what they do. And they, they love being educators and don't get me wrong. I hate it on academia, but I'm not hating on academics. I'm hating on the processes. I'm hating on the jargon and I'm hating on the, you know, the unfair hours and like meh pay in some, in some cases. But um, yeah, anyways, that was me rambling. 
lots of important points there. And, uh, you know, while we're on it, as you said, I think um, in certain in certain places, there's a, a bit of a culture of publish or perish type stuff. And then that's that's prioritized at the expense of teaching, for example. They'll, they'll, some people will view teaching as a sort of necessary evil, but, you know, I should really be doing research because I'm a serious academic. And, you know, I think that's um, that's a bit of a problem, uh, especially if, if education, for example, in the UK is supposed to be a big attraction to the UK and, and one of our best services, then, you know, if, if you don't have the best people teaching, then that's going to undermine that that whole enterprise. Yeah, I agree, man. And but at the same time, like when you have um, when you have a system that is not encouraging the I said the people that make that system to be better and encourages coasting to a certain extent, eh, how can you expect it to advance? You know, like coasting in academia, like academia can be a very like cozy place if you've got it like if you've made yourself in and you've been there for years and you've published and like you you don't I'm not saying you're gonna be horrible at what you do, but you know, you'll have the same curriculum. Students will come, students will go, years will pass, ah, but before you know it, you've retired, you know? And I think that's particularly the case in, in certain subjects, you know, for example, certain law subjects. If, if a lot of what you teach in jurisprudence is, you know, theories from, from hundreds of years ago, is, uh, there's less updating that you might have to do in, in your field, for example. So, yeah, that, that, makes, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. So just a couple of questions to wrap up. And I, I'm conscious we've spoken for quite a while and I'm, I'm really grateful for all your time. Good. Well, so am I. Um, is there anything that you wish I'd asked or anything that I've neglected to ask that you, you hoped I might? Um, not really. Like that's, that's a bit of a, it's a loaded question. Like as, I guess, I don't know, maybe if, if it's, I don't know, maybe like how how one can go about um, identifying solid sources of information nowadays where like everybody seems to have a PhD or like maybe that's maybe that's not entirely true. But like you see a lot of uh, a lot of stuff out there and science is sort of pimped out quite a bit. There are a lot of authorities who, who may have dubious credentials. Yeah. And it, it is, as you said, I think we forget as, as people in academia and people with PhDs, for example, that it's quite different, difficult to differentiate sometimes between these different sources of authority when, yeah, so I, I think you're, you're hitting on a valid point. So, yeah, please please expand on that. So, unfortunately, nowadays, following and likes or success themselves don't seem to be uh, enough for you to know whether somebody is a charlatan or not. You can go on, like, on like YouTube and look at people like Dr. Berg, for example, um, who is, I'm not sure if you know, uh, is, is he like your, okay. Cause the way you looked at me, I was like, ah, it's probably his father or something. Now they, they, they have them. He's, he's the, the co-host of the show. Anyways, Dr. Berg is like, it's just like a, he's not even a real, real fake doctor. He's a doctor of chiropractic. Uh, so he's legally, uh, he legally has to have DC after Dr. Berg, but he's, he's played it smart and he's essentially, He's essentially copyrighted, trademarked drberg.com. So then he can use that as his logo without the DC part. Anyways, man, some guy with 11 million subscribers on YouTube. Um, highest viewed video has 19 million views. 
multiple videos over 10 million views, multiple like millions of followers on other platforms as well. Books, schmooks, podcasts, all the whole, the whole lot. So like if I am random guy or girl at home looking for some information on nutrition and I see Dr. Berg, I see doctor. I don't, I don't, I don't care to, to fact check DC. I'm not even, I don't even see DC. I'm seeing Dr. Berg. I don't even know what the DC means and all the, the title games that we, we losers like to play. I see millions of views, million, uh, thousands of likes, thousands of positive comments about how this was life changing. And then you have, you know, videos like what happens if you stop eating sugar for 14 days? Uh, the real reason why apple c- uh, cider vinegar helps the weight loss. Um, and a bunch of other stuff. So all that to say that just because somebody has a title following and seems to be financially and like successful or just successful in terms of status, that unfortunately is not the, is not, is not a surefire way to know that they're doing well. However, look out for people that do have some form of education, but try to understand what the consensus is. If you're seeing that, let's say on, intermittent fasting if you're seeing multiple people like if you if you let's say you want to educate yourself on intermittent fasting and you youtube it and you see let's say dr berg or whoever make these insane claims that oh it's the best thing and it will clear your your organs and it will rejuvenate you and then you see that six other people that are that have degrees and experience and are publishing research and have a following all say something completely different and that the consensus leans towards the other side, then that's a good way to sort of find your way through the madness. Um, like ideally get a PhD and start reading, uh, you know, the literature yourself, but nobody's doing that. Um, and again, finding resources that do summarize the, the current available scientific evidence, like on nutrition, examine.com does that. There's a new website that is slowly coming up called consensus.app. Uh, dot a double p and for example you could write does creatine help build muscle and it has all the studies for you and it says um you know 82 percent yes 12 percent possibly six percent no and it just has a summary of the current available evidence but um yeah if somebody's making insane claims and they're, they're they have that hack that you've been missing that's usually a red flag yeah i think are there, are there any other red flags i think one for me when people talk about the real something behind yeah, yeah, yeah. that that often seems to be a bit of a red flag are there, are there any others that that get your you know your spider senses tingling um so like obviously because nowadays social media that landscape has changed the game requires some form of like clickbait to go on which is fine um so it, the title may be the real hack that you've been missing for and then you turn you know you look at the video and it's a, a very sort of like mild take on something with a lot of disclaimers um, but I would say extreme claims that really go against the consensus, dogma, um, the idea, like people expressing themselves in, in, in like absolutes. Obviously, there's things like, hey, there's gravity. Gravity. Nice try, NASA. Or shall I say Disney Studios? Um, you know, there's, there, there's things that we can express absolutely. But if you are seeing people being extremely absolute and dogmatic and not willing to change their opinion in the light of new data, that's definitely a red flag. But the, the, the main thing is insane claims that really go against the current consensus. Like you can easily spot that out. 
And I think, as you've highlighted a few times there, the consensus, the bulk of the evidence, the preponderance of the evidence, you know, that's the, the thing to... No, but you know what I mean, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, it, was the, it was the word that you used. I was like, I heard the British anthem play in my head. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I've got to throw out the occasional long word, right? Um, <laughs> I can't remember what I was going to say. Yeah, I, I think, as you said, it's, it's the bulk of the evidence, it's the consensus. There'll be a few kind of outliers outlying studies and all that sort of thing but if 80 percent of it goes one way then that's likely the the way to you know i think that's the conclusion you should probably draw but people are always drawn to the contrary opinion uh, exactly and it's it's also this sort of human nature where you want to be like where you want things to be simple and like you you want things to be like Ah, this is the one thing I, I was missing out all this time. When, like, unfortunately, again, as we said, with muscle growth or with anything, it all comes down to the plain old boring. Do the thing consistently over time. Same with, like, okay, obviously there, there can be exceptions and genetic freaks, but unfortunately, if there was an actual hack, you'd know about it. Like, the you would be first, like, if that supplement that some person is telling you is a game changer was a game changer, everybody would be on it and you would know about it. Yeah, I think that's, especially in the context of supplements, I think that's really important to remember. Um, so, yeah, and, and <laughs> the supplement industry, uh, you know, people have seen the documentary Bigger, Stronger, Faster. That really yeah, is the, the nice. Wild West, right? The, there's all sorts of claims that are, you know, quite quite spurious at best. So um, that's, think, that's, it. that's that's awesome, man. Yeah, that's that's yeah, a classic, I, bro. It it really is, yeah. It's uh, by, um, by Bell, um, Mar um, Chris Mark, Bell, yeah, Chris Bell, yeah, Mark Bell's uh, uh, brother. I've actually got Chris Bell coming up on on the um, on Unfiltered. So hey, um, respect just to just yeah. to bring the views back after my episode. <laughs> no way, this will probably be one of the most popular. Um, so. Anything else that you'd like to mention? Obviously, you have your own podcast. We'll link to all of that. And, you know, you have um, you have a lot of your own research. Is your PhD available for those who want to read it? Yeah, it's, it's been published as separate studies on, on a bunch of journals. If you go to minimumdose.training, um, first three links are the seven studies of my PhD. Okay. So that, that's good. And then where else would you like to direct people to? Um, I guess my YouTube channel. If you type drdr.pak, Dr. Pack, um, you'll, you'll get that. I'm uploading one or two videos per week on a bunch of things related to lifting. We have our Muscle and Feels podcast with fellow real doctor Milo Wolf. And um, yeah, Instagram as well, I guess. If you have any questions and you want to shoot me a DM or want to see those infamous memes, uh, that's also Dr. Pack. If you write PAK, it should probably come up if you're following other um, sort of figures in the field. And we'll link to, to all of those as well. So uh, they'll all go out with the article and I'll reduce, uh, sorry, I'll resist the urge to start howling as well. Every time you, you mention that. I... Ah, nice. Yeah. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Pack. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Unfiltered Podcast. If you've got this far, I hope you won't mind if I ask you to leave a five-star review when you get the chance. We'd really appreciate it. 
And don't forget you can access all of our exclusive unfiltered video interviews and features at unfilteredonline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. See you next time.